Hello again. Uh, this is Chaz Emmerich, and this is episode number two of uh, the Strictly Professional podcast, which is the name that I came up with in a rush uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, got another group of people here to talk about various topics, although we have uh, one in particular that uh, uh, everyone here has some experience with from different uh, directions. So um, let's have everyone say who they are and do your intro thing. <laughs> uh my name is Miles, and I work for the Cooley Dixon Healthcare Corporation. Uh, my name is Joe, and I work for WGBH Interactive. Uh, my name is Michael McIntosh. I work for TNR Global. Um, I am the VP of Search Technologies and Senior Search Architect. And I'm Mike Klatsky. I work with Mike McIntosh at TNR Global, and I'm the VP of System Administrations. I manage all of our infrastructure. Okay, and so I'm Chaz, like I said, and uh, you can find me at uh, muckandbrass.com or snowtide uh, or snowtide.com. And um, thanks, Mike. Yeah, so uh, we have a we have a little treat here, uh, Michael. Why don't you tell us uh, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> we are pouring a homemade chocolate uh, chocolate coffee stout. Um, in my spare time, I like to brew some beer on occasion. So we're sampling a little bit. And it's fantastic. Just a little bit. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good. It's yeah, I have good. to say I'm not a stout fan, but I'm liking this. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Not too chocolate. Sometimes it's like really sweet, you know, and I feel weird about drinking the beer. Yeah, I like it a little bit drier. I like to be able to enjoy it without yeah. it like knocking you out. Well, I, my, my general rule is that you don't want to drink any beer you can see through, and so stouts are always the way to go for me. Very good. Uh, so anyway... Um, the last podcast had just an, uh, an assortment of people that uh, uh, we got together and t- we talked about anything and everything. Um, but this time around, I got together a group of people that I knew had uh, worked with larger applications, uh, uh, working with you know larger deployments of in-house uh, uh, IT infrastructure and also cloud infrastructure. And... Um, I wanted to have a little discussion, in part just to you know test my own uh, understanding of things, and you know maybe learn some new stuff about uh, that general area of uh, uh, IT management, uh, how it relates to cloud infrastructure, and maybe talk a little about a little bit about um, building applications and and what the app architectures need to look like to deploy to uh, larger. Um, larger pieces of infrastructure, and particularly uh, uh, cloud services. So I guess I'll look at my list of topics here. Um, and so the, the, the first thing that's worth talking about is where you're going to deploy your applications. Um, for the longest time, uh, we here at Snowtide uh, deployed virtually everything in-house, probably out of paranoia. Um, uh, and over time, that's just become unworkable. Um, and so now I'm in the process of moving everything out into, in particular, uh, uh, AWS, just because it has the support that we need for um, the, the various uh, services applications we're building. Um, Why was it unworkable, Chad? What was, the, what, was the big, what was the big issue that was holding you back? Well, it was just a whole lot of work that had absolutely nothing to do with 
what we wanted to like the administration. Yeah, administration all the all all the sysadmin, the you know uh, you know outages. You know we have UPSs and such, but that right, doesn't. Right. We're still in a resident. Well, like a municipal zone, I guess, but not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's 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 the obvious problem. The less obvious problem is uh, you know as as we've been building out. Um, or planning to build out uh, applications and I look forward to what we would need to uh, set up in terms of processes for everything from you know allocating new compute to storage to you know what happens if a power supply goes down right, right, um, right, right. Th that was that was just a ridiculous set of things to worry about when we only care about delivering the functionality. That's right. Almost like you need a whole data center, regardless of whether you have one computer or a hundred. Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 obvious in hindsight, but the but the reason why I started treading down that path of hosting things in house is because a lot of our customers have uh, very um, very rigid uh, security and confidentiality requirements, right. um, and. I figured might as well get it right from the start to handle those customers, sure. even though perhaps uh, uh, in in numeric terms, if not in revenue terms, uh, most people don't particularly care about security or their confidentiality right. or not. Um, and so, I've, after after seeing what the practical consequences of that uh, would turn out to be, uh, we're just going to get things out there in right, a, right. but the gist of it was infrastructure was really holding you back always on electricity managing UPS units failover for servers that kind of stuff well there's there's also the uh, the uh, uh, application and programming uh, model where there's I mean especially if you look at Amazon they have services there that make our job as software developers a whole lot easier in a variety of ways um, that we would never be able to replicate and wouldn't right. even want to think about doing that. Um, and I think probably one of the things that's core with a developing business is that you spend more time uh, building um, building value in your business. And if you have to spend all of your time working on infrastructure instead of actually innovating with your with your product, it kind of takes the fun out of it. Yeah. And I think it it can also increase your costs, especially especially for a startup. Um, or even if you are a little bit more mature, using Amazon or some of the other services out there, it abstracts the hardware-level system administration as well as the your own infrastructure. Just kind of abstracts that. So what you're worried about is you just you need a machine, you bring up a machine, and you toss your application on there. But it's even more than than hardware level. It's it's really uh, uh, getting into the services side of things because, or infrastructure as a service or <coughs> whatever the appropriate acronym is because um, uh, look at uh, uh, Amazon RDS which just came out mm -hmm. which as far as I'm concerned is fantastic because we what don't is, use What is Amazon RDS again? Uh, <laughs> wink wink yeah, so Amazon uh, Relational Database Service for, for those listeners who don't know um, uh, is a uh, it's a service that Amazon offers that is essentially a value add on top of their existing EC2 service that you pay for on an hourly basis just like EC2 but it's a hosted 
and managed MySQL installation. Um, and it just works. Uh, and you know, we don't use MySQL for anything uh, except for the various applications that we've purchased uh, that require some sort of relational database service and actually one that requires MySQL explicitly. Uh, and so that's the only reason we ever ran MySQL and now all those things are running up in, uh, in AWS uh, and hitting a RDS MySQL instance that I will never ever have to <laughs> one, one more less thing to manage. <laughs> it, it practically becomes a standalone appliance. You yeah. know, and you can when you don't need it, you unplug it and don't pay it. And and I'll say it's um, we've been doing a little bit of testing um, with that because we're heavy MySQL users. And we're testing to see is it going to be something appropriate for our use. Um, with MySQL. I've got a lot of MySQL training, so there are a lot of um, a lot of things about tuning a MySQL server that is kind of like, you know, wrote to me. I just, I take a look at it. Okay, what's the checklist of things that you need to deal with? Okay, run through those. It's when you get to that last 10% where you need to boost that performance to get rid of some of the problems that are inherent in running a database. That's where all the time comes in. So, what I'm hoping to gain from our testing of the RDS service is, will it eliminate that last 10%? Does it perform that well? I don't know at this point. Hopefully we will. I mean, is there, do you think there's a point at which, uh, say it doesn't handle that 10%, would the, would the uh, ease of management associated with it make it worthwhile to have, you know, 10% uh, more instances? and cluster them appropriately in order to just not have to manage the local installs anymore. It, it very well might. Um, that's something that I couldn't really answer right now. Um, you know, given, given, given some of the data sets that we've got and given some of the performance challenges we've got, um, it may turn out to be more expensive on a, on a per Amazon, Amazon RDS basis. But if you take out my time, if you take our administration time out, it might turn out to be cost-benefit there, but I'd have to take a look at that. My question I would have as a developer is if they provide a way to partition data across multiple uh, MySQL services. Um, you mean baked in sharding? Yeah. Okay. Do, does their service, I'm not familiar with their service yet, so do they have baked in sharding or anything? At this point, I don't know. We don't do any sharding right now. Okay. Um, so I haven't actually dug that deeply into it. I've been looking at it as, as a just kind of, kind of a, a, a lift and deploy situation with what we've got, drop it in just to see, will it even work? All right. Um, we've got some unique, <coughs> unique things that we have about our database setups and how we roll new data in, um, that type of thing that are... Um, they just—they're unique, so it's very difficult to translate it into a whole new type of a service. Mm -hmm. um, so that—that's part of what we're looking at right now: is how do we lift it and then drop it onto the RDS service, and then from there, how do we make it work? Well, that's—that's that's what made so, it so attractive for us is that you know we don't develop against MySQL. Right. We just we always ever just used it as an appliance essentially. Which mean which we unfortunately needed to manage in the background. And so now we just, you know, for Jira and Atlassian and uh, uh, Serve 4 that we use for uh, help desk and things like that, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We just 
plug in our our you know uh, JDBC URL and right. it just does its thing. And for you, for your for the way you were using it, the way you use MySQL, any administration of the database is a cost sink for you. Yeah, you don't gain anything from it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a perfect fit for what you're doing. I think it would be also interesting um, for people that might have, um, you know, people that are, are, you know, prototyping some software that they may be using, uh, you know, an ISP or um, what do they call it, shared hosted that doesn't have a database setup um, that they want, they could actually use something like this to serve as the, the centralized database while they develop their web app elsewhere uh, without having to... Uh, Move their existing, uh, all of their existing development work uh, to some other um, shared hosting solution. One of the and one of the, I guess we should stop uh, talking about RDS before it turns into the RDS show. And like, I guess you can go on forever. Smell that time on it. Smell that time on it. One thing I noticed is that there's a. Um, there's an argument to one of the, the tools for creating a RDS instance where you specify what engine, and right now the only one that's available is MySQL 5.1. And so you can imagine, you know, Oracle 10G and Postgres and blah, blah, blah. So it's... Yeah, that would be interesting. So it looks like they're they're laying the groundwork for, for you know, yeah. offering all sorts of uh, more esoteric things like uh, CouchDB, <coughs> Redis, or... Which isn't which is an odder one relational, but you can imagine them offering a couch yeah, that's, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. I would say it's the hospital um, at Cleve Dickinson. Uh, of course, we can't use Amazon because that would be that'd be crazy. But um, we do have a, a big VMware ESX server that, mm-hmm. and we are moving more and more, more and more of our uh, servers to virtual servers mm-hmm. because it's just so much so much easier to manage and. Um, I don't know. I mean, that, a lot of times that gets completed with with uh, cloud computing, but I think there's definitely oh the more and more virtualization. Yeah, still the more, the more discussion of what the heck cloud really. Yeah, yeah. It's like a general term for I just anything on the internet. I just generally go based on if it's got elasticity, it's cloud. If it doesn't, it's basic. It's basic virtual servers. And right, that's just right. my own. Whether that's what everybody else uses, that's just how I think of it. And in the, in the conversations that, that we have with, uh, with with clients or, or even potential clients, we often break it break it into the the public cloud versus the private cloud. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the public cloud, as as Chris uh, uh, hinted at, um, for Cooley Dickinson, um, would not be a place where you'd put your data due to the security concerns and privacy and certifications and all of that. Um, but uh, there is the the option of the private cloud, which is uh, virtualization inside of someone's own network, um, which lets them still have a lot of the flexibility. It's, it has the overhead that they have to have the internal IT folks to manage it, um, but uh, you know can actually be something that does adhere to um, the regulations. There's, there's also, uh, there's, there's certainly the, the Amazon private cloud where you basically carve out some chunk of their services that you access through a VPN, and so it's right, yeah. like yes, a private right. cloud. And then uh, there was one mention I heard of about people working, um, working towards uh, uh, doing very low-level encryption 
in cloud services like EC2 so that even the cloud provider wouldn't be able to peek at what's going on within that VM uh, instance that they have running on their servers. Um, I presume we're quite a ways away from that sort of thing. But. Yeah, we. I mean, we encrypt a lot of our data um, sitting on AWS servers um, and on our Elastic Block Store volumes as well. Um, we encrypt that so that if something's exposed, um, there's not a huge issue. Um, but where do you keep the keys? In the <clears throat> we what what we do is we just we put them up there when we need them. Oh, okay, but. Um, there, there is the ongoing issue. Mike and I were actually just talking about this yesterday. There is the ongoing issue about credentials. Um, how do you manage credentials? And it, it's when you have a whole bunch of different people, um, how do you give somebody credentials to, you know, run any of, the, any of the queries that they need, how to bring up machines, bring down machines, basically, um, any of the management of the cloud stuff. And you've got a combination of certificates, key pairs. Yeah, there's a um, whole set of things. Secret, secret access keys, access keys, things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been reading and thinking about it for quite a while. Um, and as, as we're growing, the need to be able to manage these keys more efficiently, um, it, it becomes even more of an issue. Because, for example, if you want to bundle an instance, if you want to take a running machine, and create an image that you can use um, in the future. You know, it's called an AMI, um, an Amazon machine image. To bundle up from that machine, you have to have the keys on the machine. Well, what happens if you bundle up that machine, leaving those keys somewhere? If somebody can get into one of those virtual machines, just like they can get into a, a regular machine, a physical machine, there you know you have the inherent vulnerabilities that you have to watch out for. If somebody gets on the machine, they have access to those keys, they've got access to your kingdom. And so how do you manage that? How do you, how do, you do processes uh, that require those keys to be on the machine without exposing yourself? Um, um, there are a couple of different ways that people are doing it, which is you don't put the key, you put the keys on, on demand and you take them off when you're done, whether you do that automatically or manually. Um, some people are using obfuscate, obfuscated URLs so that they actually have the keys stored in S3 and they bring them down that way. Um, there are a whole bunch of different ways. Almost every single way I've seen of managing keys on instances, <laughs> root local privilege es- escalation is always there. You just can't eliminate it. Right. And, um, you know, it. it Anyway, I just rambled on. No, I'm not um, but it's just something point. that's been kind of on 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 my on my um, my. On I've been mind. thinking about it quite a bit. <laughs> the, the the other thing from a software development side is um, you have to be more careful with your developers to make sure that um, you have a security or a code development policy that they adhere to because it's very often that. Well, a pattern that I see a lot is, you know, sometimes you're checking something out or you're trying out an idea like, you know, uh, using S3 um, or some other service. Uh, and you might have keys on there, but making sure that uh, things are cleaned up. So um, if you're actually uh, working with things that uh, give you access to different parts of, uh, like Amazon uh, Web Services, uh, you have to be careful that none of your developers leave the keys to the kingdom lying around and make sure that 
you know, uh, if they have any web apps or anything, that there's no way that config files or anything that relies upon that stuff uh, is publicly visible. Um, so, one thing, one one thought that I had uh, when I was going through and evaluating uh, what services to use uh, before I eventually chose Amazon was uh, uh, I, I I looked at Rackspace because they've made a bunch of acquisitions in this general area. <laughs> <laughs> I think Joe's waiting for the shibboleth question. <laughs> I am not. Uh, and. Um, They've, they've made a bunch of acquisitions in this area, but the the array of services that Amazon provides is so uh, is is leaps and bounds ahead of what Rackspace has. I was just wondering what you guys thought Rackspace, what 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 value they had within the the broader marketplace of these sorts of things, uh, since they seem to be falling further and further behind technologically. Can I just make a comment on that from sort of a higher level? And it's the it's the level of like choosing which service you're going to use and evaluating which one. It seems to me you have to make a pretty big commitment when you make that choice. And this whole cloud computing world is fairly fresh and mm-hmm. sort of in its infancy. And <clears throat> you can really make the wrong choice. You know, Microsoft's coming out with their new product. I'm sure there's like five startups somewhere that are coming out with like the next great cloud computing solution. You could really be screwed in a way if you like commit to this because you have they all have different APIs, they all have different authentication systems. And, um, I just wonder, you know, it doesn't seem to be any way around that. But it's 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 not like you know if you decide to go to like managed hosting versus your own hosting, like your code is going to run on a Dell box in your office or a Dell box at Rackspace. It's that you don't have to do all that much differently there. But if you're choosing different. Uh, services you do. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lock-in. And, I mean, look at, uh, you know, Sun had their own cloud, and that sort of went away. And IBM had their own cloud, I think, before they jumped on the Amazon bandwagon. Uh, Maybe they still do for higher-end stuff? They still do. Um, They still have their HPC cloud, but, you know, I don't know if it's, or I know it's not as deep into the space as Amazon. I think Amazon's biggest piece of leverage there is not just that they were kind of the first out of the gate in this, but that they're also very consumer-oriented. So, you know, almost anybody can at least bring up a server and start to do some stuff relatively easily. And a lot of people already have Amazon accounts, so it's not that much of a leap. They know Amazon, they've ordered books from there and stuff, and gee, I need a server. Oh, Amazon's got this cool service, you know, instead of going to one of these other managed hosting companies, oh, I'll just get a virtual server at Amazon. And it acts it acts like a machine, even if you don't get into the whole S3 and RDS and whatnot. You just have an EC2 machine, and you run your stuff on there, and you get to play, and it's not that expensive. Um, so I think that is really, really big for them. And then as they've added different services... Um, I know we went through a period, we've been doing this for several years, we went through a period where one of the problems with Amazon EC2 instances is, is when you shut it down, the stuff you had on it went away. Well, what did Amazon do to address that? They've got Elastic Block Store. So now you've got a persistent device, so if your instance goes away or you shut it down, you can move. You can put that disk into another instance that takes yeah. care of that. Amazon seems yeah. to have a real plan. Yeah, they, yeah. They keep introducing more and more 
form or a product that builds on the products they they initially started with. Right. So as time goes on, they seem to always be adding value. Whereas Rackspace, they're just cobbling yeah. together whatever well, they can. Well, and Rackspace Rack seems to have the attitude that you know our business model is we put server, we put like you know pizza box servers in a big room or whatever, and we build people for their money. And they never really thought about well, what are we going to do next? Well, right. you know, how are we going to make the service more compelling? I mean, I had Rackspace for a while, and every couple of years, it'd be like, well, you know, it's time to renegotiate your contract, and then I have to deal with the pain and suffering of moving all my stuff to a new server, getting everything to function, so on and so forth. So I could take my old server and I don't know, like, put it on the funeral pile, pile, and you know, push it out across the channel. I don't know what they did. They re-rent it at, at, at a clearance price to somebody else. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> a, it's a pain in the ass that they did not feel. It is a very troublesome for me, stressful and unpleasant. And Rackspace, it was never like, you know what, we're working on this. Well, this Next year, you won't have to deal with it. Yeah. Amazon is a consumer of its own product, so it yeah. always wants to make it better because they have a need for it to be better, whereas Rackspace isn't a consumer of its own product, I don't think, because they don't do web apps that, that I know of anyway. That's a really good point, John. True. Yeah, and they don't need their own. And I think that's how that's how the product grew out. From what I've read, is Jeff Bezos have said has said, we've got all this excess capacity. We're running our stuff on it, but we're not utilizing everything we've got. What do we do with it? And I mean, in terms of you know choosing a horse, as it were, um, AWS is is so. Uh, so entrenched already that it's a de facto standard. So you have the, the uh, Eucalyptus project, yeah. which is an open source re-implementation of all the AWS APIs, or some yeah. some sizable subset of them. Yeah. Certainly the EC2, the S3, maybe the EBS at this the point. The EBS they've got right now. So that's great. So people could uh, develop a solution on AWS, but if they had to deal with regulations or anything, they could move it right, inside. Right, so you can bring it inside, that's and then you great. can you know, do a colo thing, and then get eucalyptus, and you know, pending you know, uh, you know, uh, validation of some kind that you know, that API is actually functionally equivalent, and you really can't transfer stuff over with the sort of transparency that the eucalyptus people would like to say that they have. Um, given that, yeah, you could take, that's 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 basically what I'm banking on right now, is that, you know, we're going to get our services out there, and we're going to start, you know, slowly accreting people who don't really care about their confidentiality that much. Um, uh, and... Uh, then once we go to our larger existing customers and uh, you know start start looking at uh, larger newer customers that do have security requirements that are pretty stringent, <coughs> we can go rent half a half a cage at some colo somewhere and run something like eucalyptus on it. Right. Um, you know, Amazon hasn't patented cloud computing along with one click. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> not not the, the um, API is an API. And in fact, yeah, there's no standards around it, so it's all just a fact. Right, and in fact, the new the newest incarnations of, of Ubuntu come with it bundled in as part of it. Yeah, I mean that that's how entrenched that standard is. I'd like to address a couple things that that uh, a couple people said with regards to Rackspace and clusters and the pain of migrating um, uh, systems every two years. Um, uh, you know, we've had a really rough. Uh, Year. rough year with Rackspace. They had some severe power outages that affected very important systems. This is that Austin stuff, right? Uh, that's the what? The, the, the Austin outages from yes, the Yes, yes. Dallas-Fort so Worth. We, we have, um, we have uh, 
35 or more um, uh, instances in both physical uh, colos, uh, some at Rackspace, and some on Amazon uh, that are all dedicated to um, uh, search clusters, uh, uh, staging, <laughs> development, and production. And uh, one of the problems with uh, the unexpected outages with Rackspace is that um, they shut down really important machines, and it was an unclean shutdown. So um, we ha we work with very robust search um, technology, so it was able to recover just fine without index corruption. But if the unclean shutdown had impacted all of our machines at once, uh, that would have been a nightmare for us to to deal with. You'd have to do like a live rebuild. Yeah, and um, just the, the, the physics of pushing that much data on the disks and reprocessing things and recrawling websites and all of that, uh, you know, it just, uh, it would take several days to, to recover. Um, so, you know, that, that's one, one problem with things like that. And uh, we had a fully fault-tolerant system, um, but it was all hosted, uh, those clusters were hosted on... Rackspace, so despite all of our fault tolerance and redundancy, uh, everything went away at the same time. So, so that wasn't uh, so awesome. Classic single point of failure. Well, yeah. This, this, this brings me to the notion of cloud federation, which has been growing in terms of buzz level. Uh, and, and, and this is the idea where <clears throat> you have uh, some standards that have yet to emerge or be defined or whatever <clears throat> that would be uh, implemented by all the various cloud vendors, you know, Amazon, Rackspace, uh, whatever the other, whatever the other RANs are at this point. That's it. Um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's others. Um, I, I know. I think there's going to be. I, I think what's going to happen is you've got your general purpose, which will be yeah. right now Amazon and Rackspace. Then you're going to have niche cloud yeah. providers for specific industries. Uh -huh. But the, but, the, but the idea is to have a common API uh, and some brokers sitting out there that will take, uh, depending on how it pans out, I've seen ideas where it takes it at a machine level where you say, I want a machine of this class, whatever some predefined class is. And it gets, it gets allocated somewhere. And it could be on Amazon, it could be on Rackspace, it could be on et cetera, it's, you know, Linode, whatever. Um, and uh, same thing with you know S3 like storage. Same thing with block level storage. Same thing with you know relational database services or other services like that. Uh, and then there's and then there's another uh, uh, level of that, which is where you would, if you're running compute nodes, you put together say a MapReduce job and send that out to this broker, and then they would dispatch that to some provider that is available. And so presumably that would resolve problems like that where you don't have a single point of failure you have this broker that's providing uh, you know mirroring of whatever storage you have as well as compute facilities so that if you know Dallas Fort Worth goes down again then the Linode cluster is going to pick it up in Charlotte or whatever right yeah actually what I was talking about was was moving towards that you, you gave a great outline but one of the things that since um, we've started work with um, uh, cloud computing as a platform uh, for about the last two years. Two, two and a half years. Um, is like the reality of it is is interesting and it's changed the way that I develop um, search solutions. Uh, it's the, changed the way that I develop um, applications. Um, 
And what I mean by that is, um, since we've had outages with physical machines, and we've lost, you know, with the, with the rack space outages, you know, that's one issue that we just have to have, you know, completely change, you know, some of our disaster recovery procedures. Um, but the, the cloud computing, as awesome as it is and as flexible as it, as it is, it still has issues with, you know, you might have a, a virtual machine instance, but the underlying physical hardware at uh, their location might be having a problem. So it, it may still impact your, your virtual instance. Um, so, you know, the easiest model is starting up a new instance and, you know, installing everything that you need there, migrating everything, and then retiring the old instance. So one of the things that it's forced me to do is be a lot more formal about um, our procedures for uh, document, documenting and, and uh, automating uh, search cluster deployment. So, you know, some of the things that we do is we do a base install, uh, and then we uh, deploy what we call an overlay, which is basically configurations to bare bones, vanilla installations of things. Um, and that modifies the system to adhere to however we want a cluster of machines configured. So, um, uh, in regards to what Chris was talking about, the pain of having to migrate every two years, one of the things that it's just sort of forced us to do, since physical or virtual um, uh, instances are not perfect, is it's forced us to sort of uh, come up with a strategy for being able to copy or deploy uh, a duplicate of uh, a machine uh, in, in case we need to suddenly migrate its responsibilities elsewhere. Um, so, and, and also to expand on that, um, <clears throat> there, there's the case of when we have a machine, a virtual machine that goes down, um, if you work with Amazon for any length of time, at some point, <coughs> excuse me, you will get an email from Amazon that says, essentially, sorry, you're SOL, the underlying hardware is having problems, get off your machine fast. <laughs> and we've lost, I think, six instances this year due to that. Um, a couple but those were long-running instances. Yeah, they're long-running instances. But a couple <coughs> of times, um, we couldn't get onto the machine. We actually had to contact Amazon, <clears throat> pay for the extra support, um, which is an additional cost, um, and have them give us access to that um, machine for enough time that we could get our stuff off of it and then do what we needed to do. A um, couple of times we were able to get in and do what we need. But what it's done is it's forced us, like Mike was saying, about um, forcing him to get procedures down and everything highly automated. On the system side, um, that's what we're working on too, so that if a system goes down, because part of this is scalability and elasticity. If an instance goes down, our systems should know about it and be able to automatically bring up another instance. The data that resides on the dead instance should already be somewhere that's accessible. Um, and we're using the same type of model where we have this a core image which has very little on it. And then when the core image is brought up, the storage is put onto it automatically. And then the applications are loaded onto it depending on what class, whether it's a web server, um, a database server, part of the search cluster, that type of thing. 
And then any additional modifications after that. Um, there, are, there are a lot of really good models out there for doing that. But um, Yeah, we, we call that bootstrap, install, and uh, configure. Bootstrap, install, slash deploy, and configure, right. Now, do you and guys... Is this all homebrew or using Puppet or Chef? Or we, yeah, we've, well, we, we've got some homebrew. Um, right now, I've got several scripts that do that. Um, they don't do all the automation that I want. They're about 80% of the way. So there's still a little bit of manual configuration that has to be done, which when you're bringing up a couple of servers isn't that big a deal. But if we need to spin up 100 servers, it's not going to be sufficient. So what we're looking at, there are a few different things in a couple of different layers. We're looking at using, um, and we're testing right now, um, Puppet um, for the initial installation and deployment after, well, the first thing is a core AMI, which has n almost nothing to it. That can come up at any time, and it comes up very rapidly. That, in, that um, will create a new EBS volume from a stored, sna stored snapshot that we've got, because all of our important data using our MySQL databases, any of that stuff, sits on EBS. Um, so once that comes up, it registers, it, it reaches out to the Puppet server. Puppet then puts on the initial overlay. And at that point, once Puppet is done with what it's doing, its mojo, um, the server is ready to use. There are a couple of other tools that we're bringing into play right now. One of them is something called Spacewalk, which is actually an open source version of the Red Hat network. Um, so if you, if you have a Red Hat server and, you, and it's registered and it's registered with RHN, um, if you've ever gone to that RHN interface, they've made that available through Fedora so that you can run Spacewalk and do all the same stuff, which means you can push configurations, you can have all of your updates applied from a central repository, so you can do your testing on any of the updates and then deploy them to your servers, that type of thing. Um, and it also gives you some inventory, um, inventory of software that's on each server as well as the servers themselves, hardware-wise, OS-wise. It, it's, it's pretty sweet. It also handles Cobbler and Kickstart, too. However, you can't really do that as well in the cloud for a whole bunch of networking reasons, like no multicast. Um, the other thing that we're just starting to look at um, is something called Fabric which is really good for, and Mike will be able to speak more about that, I think. Um, and what that does is that allows you to actually push configurations and put, actually it allows you to do almost anything you want to a large set of servers. Hmm. Um, but I look at it more from the standpoint of an addendum to Puppet, not a replacement for Puppet. Puppet handles everything automatically. Fabric is kind of like a, it's almost like a fancy SSH. Yeah, um, but more, but more <coughs> so because there's cluster SSH for pushing thing. This is this has a lot more to that. Yeah, it's kind of like a combination of a make system uh, and uh, something that has SSH uh, support and also has role support. So, right. uh, Fabric is a Python module and a tool um, that lets you set up uh, hosts um, and perform operations on all of them in a, in a Python configuration. Um, I actually intend to blog about um, Fabric. Uh, sometime within the next few weeks. Um, uh, the tentative title for that blog would be uh, Role-Based uh, Cluster Administration Using Python Fabric. Uh, so one of the, the cool things about the, the, the search engine um, 
that we use is that every single node in a cluster has a cluster configuration that says where all the other machines in the cluster are. So one of the things that um, I'm going to use Fabric for um, <coughs> is to automatically, based upon the role, so I might have to do an operation with a crawler machine, or I might have to do an operation with one of our several document processor machines, is, is basically issue commands against machines that serve certain roles to you know push metadata or to push documents or to update something so it's very powerful and if if you're a software development house that uses python a lot um, it's very attractive um, uh, i think uh, for for rubyist i think an equivalent to fabric would be capistrano mm -hmm. uh, so but uh, i'm very impressed with it so far so how would how would you use how do you guys handle configuration management, like in a virtualized environment or whatever you guys do? I don't handle any of that stuff myself. So. <laughs> oh, you just pass it <laughs> off to the sysadmins exactly. and you fix this. <laughs> uh, at the hospital, we have like individual. We have images for individual machines, and we snapshot them on a regular basis. So if one goes down, we can we can bring it back up. Oh, so each back time, pretty much as far as it goes. Each time you twiddle some configuration somewhere, then it gets snapshotted and. Then you just roll back to that if something goes. We do do that. We also do regular backups on the virtual machines as if they were physical machines. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's there's that as well. We do that. We do that more regularly. I don't think we snapshot. We don't. We don't have a regular snapshot process. Like if I'm gonna really mess with a server, I can say key snapshot it, and then I can do whatever to it. And then if it screws up, I can say well, just start from my snapshot. Just a. A really quick interjection, one of the cool things about Cloud um, Platform is that if you do make backups, you can test the recovery procedure much easier than you can with like the physical machines because you have to have enough machines to do that with. And I think that many people have a backup procedure, yeah, but it's not tested. Yeah. So like the yeah. danger the danger outage or whatever, I don't think they tested the recovery procedure. Nah, you see that a lot of organizations too, they have a DRP plan that nobody's ever actually done. You know, because there's just not a physical hardware. I remember, um, I don't remember who it was, but they uh, there was they, used, they may still be a company that um, if you go down, you tell them what hardware you had in your server room, and they send out a big truck, and the truck's got everything in it. Oh yeah, it's like and the truck contains server room. Yeah, yeah, and then you then you do you do your DRP process, you restore to the truck. Um, somebody around here did do that. They got the truck and did the recovery. But uh, that's <laughs> that's pretty rare. That actually happened at a prior employer of mine. That, you know, did they, they did they get the truck and do they the thing? pulled up to uh, you know semis and yeah. Uh, and, oh. I mean, I wasn't in there, but uh, somebody I, I, a, a coworker of mine was uh, a, a DBA, and he had to go down there and rack the store. Some yeah. Side and <laughs> Years ago, we had a situation where we were running. Um, a very a very well known backup system that used to run on mainly Solaris, and um, the issue was you could back up and you could restore really easily. It was all all tape based. The problem was what happens if you lose for some degree of uh, reasonable right? right? And you know, God forbid, you know, we're sitting near the server room. My office was near the server room, and God forbid, there's a fire in the building. Everybody leaves. You're running into the server room to grab the bunches of tapes <laughs> out of the thing so that you could rough recover. Well, this happened. We had wow. to we had to run out, and I had you know these boxes of tapes, and we lost the machine that ran the backup server. 
So we thought, okay, no problem. We'll just bring up another server and run the server software. Except for one little problem. This particular software's license was tied to the host ID on that Solaris server. It took us three weeks. It took us three weeks to get a license for a new server. Those damn commercial software vendors? Guess what? (laughs) (laughs) For three weeks, we couldn't recover data that we desperately needed. And God help you if it was a a vendor that had gone out of business that you couldn't get a new license from. Exactly. Hence, my devotion to open source. Yeah. (laughs) Damn. That is rough. What was Sun thinking, you know? Well, this wasn't Sun. This was... Oh, it was um, just like a third-party product. It was a third-party... <clears throat> Legato. Um, <laughs> <laughs> any, any, any federal subpoena should be sent to, to Michael Klasky himself, not to the Strictly Professional <laughs> Podcast. That's my, that's my false identity. <laughs> I used to work a job where I had an alias. <laughs> I, was, I think it was Cornelius Robbins. And I had to, every time UPS delivered a box, if they happened to come to my desk, I had to sign Cornelius Robbins. Wow. Yeah. Miles is shady past. <laughs> That's like when I go when I go to restaurants, I will periodically toss in my my alias name for two reasons. One, my real name is very very common, so when they announce my name, right, nineteen people run race run for the table, but. My nickname is different enough that not only will nobody else have it, but the person who actually has to say the name will feel a little bit ridiculous. So get a little bit of joy. <laughs> so what's the that. name? What's the name? Mapu. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, yeah. Most most people know that, but for somebody who doesn't know me, they're kind of hesitant to say that name. Where did that handle come from, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. You would have to ask. <clears throat> it's how it's... It's how a little, little, maybe three-year-old child named Michael pronounces his own name. Oh, and when I was yeah, and when I was working at a previous employer, um, I had you know my email address was Mike M Klatsky at yada 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 dot com, and I wanted a personal address to give out to friends, and I couldn't come up with one. All of my friends were gamers. Everybody else who worked there, so they had all these you know. Dark Star and you know Rigamorph and stuff or whatever, and I've I've never been a gamer, so I needed to come up with some kind of a unique name, and somehow I just, oh yeah, I used to have that when I was little, and all of a sudden it became my nickname for everybody. So it's got great letter economy. It's only four characters. Four characters. Yeah, it's very memorable. Mapu. Yeah, yeah. I own the domain name either, and multiple yeah. variants thereof. Never heard of anyone with that nickname before. No, although I think it's a, like a Chilean terrorist organization. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Also not part any, of the podcast. I haven't gotten any threats yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all this failover uh, uh, discussion uh, brings me to something else. Uh, which has been orthogonal to all this IT infrastructure stuff, which is how to build apps for these kinds of elastic cloud infrastructures. And um, we were talking very briefly about the whole Redis and cloud and, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, couch and uh, things like that. Right, right, right. Yeah. So can I... tell, us, tell us about your Redis experience. Redis. Okay. What is uh, Redis? It's, a, it's a one of those uh, key value. Oh, okay. It's like Voldemort or CouchDB or... Data stores. Because if you say database and they say, which one are you using? You say, oh, I'm using Cassandra or whatever. (laughs) And they're like, what? 
people get yeah. scared. Yeah. Well, yeah, Redis is, uh, I think, I, well, I don't know. I'm sure there's a spell. Uh, R-E-D-I-S. Is that an acronym or is that an actual I think name? He's, I think their idea was like redistribute maybe. Okay. So they shortened it to Redis. I really, I really don't know. The product was pretty easy to set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big plus. And it, um, <clears throat> in addition to having like keys and values, it supports the idea of like a list. So you can, you can create a list and then add things to it or remove things to it in atomic operations. And I'm looking to receive messages and add them to queues for everybody else, and then the other processes will like pull things off the queue and process them. So this seems like a really good, really good. And this is like a zero admin message queue that you're using it as essentially, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There's really nothing. You, you start the server process and boom, it's all set. Mm-hmm. You know, you, yeah. You just create your list, start adding things to it. Then your other application connect to the server and just remove things from the list. The, the setup was really, really simple. When you update things, are they versioned? Update systems and uh, objects in the system? On Redis? Yeah. No, it, it's just it's atomic. You can't really, like, you couldn't, like, roll back to a particular oh, okay. version. Or, so I mean, know, in terms like, of their implementation, I don't really know how they're, how they're doing Well, I, I know there's something like maybe Project Voldemort or CouchDB... Like, you could actually look at earlier versions of, of the object in the system. I don't think Redis does that. Okay. I'm not sure, but I don't think it does. They look. They seem to really be looking at, like, this one specific area and trying to do something that's, like, very fast with low overhead and easy to interact with. And they also have, like, a like a, a, like a web API, you know, with real simple commands like set, get, Okay, RESTful. Delete. Yeah. Nice. RESTful. Nice. Yeah, it uh, seems like a really nice way to approach a uh, uh, very low latency, you know, shared state mechanism. That yeah, you, you can pull a couple of yeah. them together. Right now, I, you can't exceed the amount of available RAM that you have. Once you start doing that, the system will start to swap, and performance will degrade very quickly. But uh, they are working on their own virtual memory implementation so that they can overcome that and have sets larger than your available RAM. And they all, they're also persistent, which uh, memcache, uh, like memcache. It's only in RAM when your memcache instance comes down and comes back up. It starts with nothing. Yeah. Whereas Redis, you take it down. It 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 has all of the all of your various keys and lists and stuff. So when you come back up, they're still there. What so, are you storing in there again? Uh, I'll be storing HL seven messages. HL seven before they get so that they can get processed, so which okay, are just be, for the hell of it. What 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 the hell is an HL seven? Oh, an HL seven message is like the uh, HL seven is this, is the the standard that uh, hospital information systems use to communicate with each other. Is this going to be for like a MapReduce or part of another process? Yeah, it's going to be part of another process. We're, we're getting, I want to be able to, well, right now the way it works <coughs> in uh, most most healthcare organizations is they have like a, like a central location. So they'll have, say, you know, an admitting system or a radiology system, so on and so forth. And each of them will do their do whatever they need to do and then send a message to the central hub I've done this. The hub will then route that message to all the other systems that need to know about it, um, and so that's pretty. You know, you don't want you don't want to interrupt that process. So what I'm going to do is write something that kind of, that like hangs off the edge, so that when these messages come through, I can I can see what they are, decide whether or not I want to store them for later. You know, for instance, like debugging things like that. But I don't want to I don't want the possibility that my system will fail or start to have problems and then messages back up cause a larger issue. So I don't need to do anything very clever. So I don't 
I don't know specifically much about Project Voldemort, but I know that CouchDB, which is what we've been using for quite a while, has that versioning capability right. where you can you can configure it obviously, but when you push a new version of a document with a part with a particular key, then it will retain prior versions if you configured it in to to do so. Yeah. Um, well, CouchDB has that concept of a document, which Redis doesn't seem to doesn't seem to have. They just have keys and values. And then they have the idea of lists and sets, which are just sets of keys and values. Yeah. They don't seem to be too interested in what your value actually is. Well, one of the one of the reasons why we chose CouchDB early on is well, besides it having a really pleasant programming model for for what we're doing, um, one of its big focuses is is replication, and its its multi master replication is dead simple and solid as a rock. So. In a in a in a failover or a, a recovery situation, we can have some set of master CouchDB databases, and say those are deployed in Amazon, uh, and then have another set say deployed in Rackspace, and having everything being replicated in real time, nice. um, so that if we go down uh, in Amazon, uh, we should be able to come up in a very uh, uh, straightforward and rapid fashion um, and obviously there's a lot of other moving pieces around it besides just the just the uh, database itself but um, we're fortunate enough to have control over the full stack so we can make other design decisions about you know what what technologies to use and how to deploy those so that um, hopefully it'll just piggyback off of that off of that replication strategy and that has a restful API too yeah it's all it's all rest and JSON and in the background, I think they're also working on um, uh, making it support. Um, I can't remember whether it, whether it's uh, Stomp or uh, um, protocol buffers, but something a little more mm -hmm. terse than just sending JSON, right. uh, which is which is pretty verbose if you're sending a lot of binary data, which we do. Right. Um, but uh, so that's that's. Those those sorts of decisions really, I think, impact what your uh, what your failover strategy is going to be. If, I mean, if you're tied to MySQL, for example, then it has a variety of issues and complicated solutions, as far as I can tell, for doing that kind of failover and replication. And multi-master doesn't really work, or isn't even offered, or do I don't know anything about MySQL. There, I don't do any of that stuff with it. It's just not robust enough. We've spent a lot of time. With just regular replication, and you know one little hiccup, and it just stops working. It just stops, and you can get past it. You can tell it to go over an error, but do you really want to go over that error? You don't necessarily because all of a sudden now you've got a master and a slave that are not in sync. So it's just going it, to cascade and go downhill from there. Yeah, I mean I've I've done lots of replication. I've done in fact one replication that I've done for the past eight years is with LDAP. And LDAP is extremely robust. You do, you set it up. It's very simple to set up. And once it works, once it's set up, it's really simple to get back in the sync. Although it rarely goes out of sync, from my experience. My SQL, um, you know, unless you're in a r very rare case, it goes out of sync, and then next thing you know, boom, you're getting an alert telling you that you're out of sync. One of the reasons why I asked about the the, the key value store systems, I think the 
what is the kitschy phrase they're using? No sequel. No yeah. sequel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. God. Which is horrible. Uh, yeah, it is. It's terrible. It's obnoxious. It, it makes it, <laughs> it's a real divide. It's very obnoxious. It. We don't need to be that kind of. We don't need that advers- adversarial attitude. They're, they're they're doing very different use cases. I like yeah. no, no compute and, and compute. No compute is my little moleskin, and compute <laughs> is using computers. Um, well, one of the the reasons why uh, uh, versioning of, of data. Um, I still think they managed like um, to make it atomic, but I might have to review what atomic means in that context. Um, but the interesting, interesting thing about versioning is that um, if you mess up, like if you're doing development and you accidentally deploy something with a bug in it, um, with, with a versioned key value store system, it, it looks like there's a way to basically roll back before you deployed the thing that had a bug in it without going through a much lower level restore process right yeah. and and if it's and if it's something that's cumulative like for example um, one of the things that we do for one of our clients is we we analyze um, URLs and what our um, web crawler uh, does with them for one of our one of our large clients um, so even though we might have a, a, a data set that only indexes six million URLs, <laughs> in the crawler fetch logs, there are like 40 million or more uh, entries about what it did when it encountered a particular URL. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in some of the recent development that I have a developer looking at, he introduced a bug, uh, which basically caused um, us to have to do a rebuild, which is really painful because it takes like six days Um uh, to rebuild this one particular data set from, from the beginning. So um, if, if we could have just gone back in time before he, he deployed uh, <laughs> the version of the, the, the log parser with the bug, we only would have had to rebuild half a day worth of, of data. So I, don't, I haven't looked at the versioning stuff at all yet, and I believe our standard configuration is just to not version it at all at the right. moment because we're just interested in current state for the moment. But my impression is that there's nothing like a redo log, where you could have, where you can set uh, set uh, uh, checkpoints and say roll forward from a known state to point n and mm-hmm. stop. I think for CouchDB anyway, if you point you know one database that you happen to be using as a backup at another and say synchronize that or uh, yeah, or to, to uh, synchronize it back and then use that versioning information to go back to some point in time. I'm not sure if that's possible or not. I think it's more focused towards app level versioning yeah, than it is towards you know, yeah. right? Because right, they because their synchronization system, they'll they'll need some way in case there's something that the default sync can't handle or handles incorrectly. They need a method for you to go back and take that document and pick which version you really want to go. That's probably the problem they're solving with their versioning. Well, you know, like you do the sync and it picks the wrong one. You're like, whoa, whoa, I need the other version I, of, that fo- of that document. I don't even think it uses the versioning information for that. I think oh, there's, really? yeah, it's, it's. my understanding is that uh, Couch Couch's uh, replication just picks a winner. So if you have a conflict... I don't even know if it's defined how the winner is chosen, right? Um, because you know, defining the, defining the semantics around how to uh, choose a uh, uh, choose a record from two candidates um, is 
not exactly straightforward at all. Might as well roll the dice. I mean, the odds of it doing what you want it to do are just as good as the odds of it doing the wrong thing. Right, so so I don't think it uses the versioning information for... No, I was thinking more like it picked, it picked one, and then you, you're looking through your data set, you're like, well, that's clearly clearly not right. What were the what were the two candidates? I'm going to pick the other one. Yeah, I don't think it yeah. has anything. No, like they that. can't do that. I think... I think it's there mostly to support, you know, app level stuff where you do want to maintain, you know, historical information associated right, right, with like people editing, right, a document, right, or, right, or you want to maintain historical information on this stock quote and be able to show right. time series and things like right, that. Right, sure. um, uh, but I don't think it uses it for its conflict resolution and things like that. Um, well, now we're risking turning into the key value store show. <laughs> uh, uh, this is a show we're interested in a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of interesting things going on. Well, well it's anyway. like Cloud or Alaska. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. That's what I'm going for. Well, you know, as, as I was looking at Redis and what Redis does, and then I was thinking about how we're doing the, the this podcast, we were talking about cloud computing. I was writing, you know, I'm writing my, I'm at least prototyping this application and closure. And again, I was thinking, you know, the more functional way of programming lends itself almost naturally lends itself to like an elastic sort of set of um, if not elastic hardware elastic set of resources mm-hmm. you know where if you're if, you, if the things you're doing are like discrete functional items you can you know roll back three redo it add more hardware and distribute it these kinds of things easily parallelizable and uh, yeah 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 more declarative whereas your usual you know structural imperative code you really you can't it's you can't really you can't move things out from under it Um, and if you had to like if whatever key value store you're using you know maybe if it didn't support you know uh, uh, sharding or partitioning you know it's feasible that you could easily add a, a partition layer on top of it by hashing the whatever the key is and routing it to the appropriate resource. I mean, actually, that's interesting you say that because that's what, uh, that's what Redis does. The, the uh, distributing across multiple Redis instances is done on the client. Nice. Oh, it's just baked right in. Yeah. Well, well, you, well, I mean, I don't know. You do it on the client where you hash the keys and so Right, but are you writing the code to hash those keys or are you... Whoever wrote the library. So oh. like, the Ruby library for Redis does that. But well, that's, the that's closure the, one probably doesn't. That's my definition of baked in for your particular purpose. Oh, yeah, right. You didn't have to write the code, so it right, just right. works. Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting to me that it's not a part of the Redis server itself. It's a client function. That's always... Is there a centralized Redis server, or are they just... They're all... They don't, there's, no, there's no one that's the boss. Yeah, there's no one that's the boss. They all just talk to each other. So for your client, you just say, this is a Redis server, this is a Redis server, this is a Redis server, and it knows how to cope with that. The Ruby client does, yeah. Oh, okay. Really? You don't have to specify, I'm targeting this one, and then in the background, they're, they're going to be replicating? Or? I don't believe so. It does something clever with the keys from each one, so that it, it can... It, it can lost my train of thought. So it can partition. So it can partition properly in cross instances. Yeah. Cool. Anybody else want? I I we've we've come to a natural end for the cloud IT management stuff. So anybody else have any other topics they want to talk about before we? I did want to add something um, as a developer about cloud development. Um, My advice to any developers that are starting to use the cloud platform, or specifically Amazon is 
that is the cloud platform I think we've established, right? Well, th- there are others. I mean, there's yeah, there's uh, Rackspace has their own little cloud thing. They bought Slicehouse. And they have their I know, I was, uh, that, was, that was sarcastic. Oh, gotcha. But they've gotcha. got Masso, too. Yeah. Which okay. Masso does something a little bit different. It's di- well, I, I actually talked to, I can't remember his name, but at um, the cloud camp in Boston not too long ago, I was talking to the guy who started Cloudhost. Uh, I'm Slicehost. And um, Slicehost, it, it's not elastic. It is mm-hmm. it's a virtual service. You buy a server of a given capacity. Just plain old VPS. Right. It's kind of like OpenVZ or Virtuoso. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's not what they're using for their, their underlying structure, but that's what it is. Maso is Rackspace's cloud play. One of the things that Maso offers... Um, that Amazon doesn't is Amazon. You have no choice of where your virtual service goes, go hardware wise. Um, you have different regions like US East One C, which is roughly equivalent to a data center, but it's you can't say that it's oh a data center in Chicago. It's different for everybody. It's not a physical data center. Maso they have a premium offering where you can actually specify that your hardware, your stuff goes on your own hardware. So it's hmm. cloud computing, but it's a premium because you're not sharing the physical resources with other people. Huh. Um, so there's a little bit more control because one of the things you'll see with Amazon is if you take a look, if you do, if you have Sysstat, Sysstat installed and you run SAR, you're going to see you've got a certain percentage of steals. Um, and you're going to see that your performance varies too, and that's because if you have other heavy users on the particular hardware set, you even though there's supposed to be isolation, the hardware can only handle so much. And if you're on a very busy set of hardware, you're going to notice you're not going to get your full compute cycles, and you'll notice a difference. Hmm. Um. Back to the uh, advice for developers, yes. um, especially Sorry. first-time developers. For the love of God, <laughs> develop on a machine that uses an elastic block store um, de- uh, mount yep. instead of the ephemeral store. <laughs> because ephemeral, if there's a problem with the instance and it goes away, Bye-bye. all of your development effort goes away forever. Uh, and even if you're using source control, which everyone should be, there are a lot of temp files or data files or things that are probably not in source control that will be a major inconvenience for you uh, if it just magically goes away. So um, as part of our company policy, um, if we have uh, you know new EC2 machines that are allocated and are earmarked specifically as development machines, I would say always use an EBS mount point to do your active development work so that in case there's a problem with the instance or you have to upgrade the instance to one that has more CPUs or more RAM, just use an EBS um, elastic block store mount uh, to save yourself a lot of grief. And of course, you can just find mount stuff from the, from the, uh, yeah, it's out that way. <coughs> uh, you can just bind mount directories from that EBS so that you can match your local development environment. So if you always run stuff out of var, blah, 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 you can, and then you mount your, your EBS volume uh, from, you know, dev SDF to, you know, slash vol or slash EBS, you can then bind mount uh, that uh, some directory from the EBS onto a, what would look like a local mount point. 
and it wouldn't change your development environment. Uh, it would match your development environment. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, like a couple, um, like we've been playing with the cloud um, platform for a couple of years, but a couple um, uh, machines that were early development machines that had some important things on it, but for the most part didn't have the latest and greatest stuff, those instances had problems, but since they were on EBS um, mounts, uh, the latest and greatest development box, um, we just took the mounts from the other two machines and we mounted them to the new box and just retired the previous two instances that were having problems. So that way I was able to look at the data that had been on those machines, uh, pull anything off of it that, that I wanted to, um, and it just makes that really easy uh, because you can transfer those mounts between instances very, very easily. So um, the, the latest machine that went out, well actually it didn't go out, we had to upgrade it from, from two CPUs to four CPUs. Um, <laughs> he, Michael Klatsky, made a new instance that was a larger Amazon instance, and we just remounted the old EBS store to it and retired the previous one, and it all just worked seamlessly. So it's very cool. It's cool. Okay, uh, so anybody else have any other? Uh, does Joe have anything to say? No, I, yeah. I think it's time for Joe to talk. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a shibboleth question. <laughs> <laughs> I think shibboleth is have dead. To do. So, uh, no, it's not dead. They're working on an Amazon Cloud shibboleth service. They should be. What is shibboleth? Uh, it's a single sign-on solution that we used to use uh, at Teacher's Domain. It's oh, from okay. uh, is it MIT that put Shibboleth together? I don't remember. It was a, it was some some well-regarded institution. Yes, but we don't use it anymore. Yeah, no, unlike Kerberos, I think it didn't really catch on. <laughs> <laughs> what do you use for single sign-on anyway? Uh, we've written some of our own solutions based on the different uh, uh, partners we work with. So. Ouch. Uh, we wrote a custom one for PBS, and we've written another one that we hope to be adopted by all of our partners. But but, but all in house, not based on. No. Wow. Because every all of our partners had specific requests, and there wasn't you know nobody wanted to use like OpenID or anything you know, like Facebook Connect. That, that that's not really appropriate for for our our stuff. Really? It's all consumer-oriented. Or cloth, right? which is just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to the OAuth guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the technical opinion on that is <laughs> stupid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't think the presumption that everyone has a web browser is reasonable. I still think every website should be viewable in links. Exactly. Exactly. And you guys are wrong. <laughs> that seems like a good place to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I should need a web browser to authenticate to do. You know, if I don't want to do anything that involves a web page. True. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Oh, uh, yeah. I have an Emacs Twitter client, and to move that yeah. to OAuth just doesn't really make any sense. Because well, because Emacs. I mean, there is like a crack-headed Emacs uh, web browser. It's number one on download.com for Windows. <laughs> yeah. You, you could use W3 to like load, load a web page, but you can't presume everyone. That's not stock Emacs. 
part of the stock that you max install. So that's like that's an unfair presumption. So so, so if you want to do OAuth, you'd have to you'd have to like. I don't know. Launch well, the client web browser. I think you're talking you, all nine of you that are using it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're talking a very specialized application. So, well, wait, how I many totally... people use uh, Emacs as a web browser? Well, they, yeah, exactly. Nobody, nobody. But well, no, so except for you. You could post your Twitter. You, you could post to Twitter from Emacs. That's not as crazy. I totally forgot that you wrote your own Twitter client for Emacs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is that and called? And it's on Parakeet. Too. Parakeet. Parakeet. Wait, 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 wait. This is going to be in the uh, podcast podcast notes. Sold. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of neat. Most libraries have a you know a web client emulator. You know, I know Perl does, Python does. Well, no, you have to actually load the website. Doesn't everybody have an iPhone? Like you have to load. You Not have to yet. load the page from the from the. You have to. You're gonna like if you your your client program. Yeah. In this case, Parakeet for Emacs has to open a web browser that loads. The this the OAuth page from Twitter so that the user can manually like hit the yes button and say okay I want to do it. You can't really you can't really fake it out. You know I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, most people I think are used. I mean, most consumer people are kind of used to that type of a thing just by going to cafes. Well, it makes a lot of sense from Facebook. So if you want to link your Facebook account to your Twitter account, OAuth is like a good fit. It makes yeah. sense because. Facebook is a web-based application. Twitter is a web-based application. One well, thing on the web, right, is when you get into internet stuff like you're talking about, where you just have thick client apps that need to authenticate to something. Then. Right. That's yeah. yeah. That's also another use case. But any case where you're not using, well, like in the case of in the case of Twitter, and like a, you know, like a standalone client for Mac OS X, you know, so to link that to your Twitter account, do you want to really? Do you really want part of the install process to be you launch the application? It opens a web browser, loads the Twitter page, and you say, yes, authorize this application. It's not really a seamless user experience. And that is my that is my issue with but, uh, is because it's so tightly tied to the web browser. It doesn't really offer another option. I'll tell you what, folks. If you want probably the best Twitter client for Emacs... You <laughs> no, no. no I, I will say, uh, was it Jonathan with the twit.l pro- uh, client? is also is very nice and is more full function than mine. Yeah, but who Mine has, does what I want. These are know? some pretty... These are some very pretty uh, 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 pieces of documentation here on your GitHub page. I mean, that's that's, <laughs> that's comprehensive right there. I'm, I'm working on a Twitter client for a CPM. <laughs> Ouch. On my 8-inch disk. Yeah. Oh, Commodore's, yeah. Commodore 128. Oh, 8-inch? No, that's 5-inch. Yeah, I know. I never had was a five and a quarter inch. Yeah, no, I don't think I've ever had a quarter inch. Oh, right off the rails now. <laughs> Uh, anyways, <laughs> switching switching topics. That's correct. Um, uh, does does anyone here um, uh, use uh, service oriented architecture approaches for for most of their their um, uh, tasks? Uh, like, do you do you write your own custom services very much, or do you just generally have standalone programs that that they do their thing and then another program uh, runs? Well, me usually it's a program does this thing, another program runs. I did write an SOA uh, service at work for for one thing, but I've only had one so far, and nobody else's. But that that one project actually it did it did catch on. But mostly I'm the only developer where I work, so well, it's, it's, it's more 
self-fulfillment you know I write the SOA server the only person who's going to communicate with it is me if I write, a, if I write an SOA client for it the path to self-fulfillment through SOA that's a because well, nobody else uses it it's all inside my little kingdom and there's like one of my bosses also developer so in this one case I wrote an SOA client to, uh, to log certain types of, of messages and then he wrote two or three web applications that do that do hit it to oh, okay. for certain types of messages uh, for you know, debugging and finding out, like tracing things and stuff. So in this one case, it did work. But um, the the reason why I asked is that um, well, you know what I was going to say is Redis is going to take the place of that because yep. Redis is web based and has a REST interface. I'm going to in this in my next project, I'm going to be storing the you other know, items that each application needs to process in Reddit at Redis, and then each application is going to look to Redis to find out what the next thing in its queue to process is, and then remove it from the queue. So, kind of in a way, that's going to provide an SOA interface. Because if you want to add something to the queue well, in one of these applications, yeah. you just you can talk to the REST interface on Redis and add the item, and then it will process it. Well, yeah, that is a service-oriented architecture. And the, the beautiful thing that I, I've... Historically, uh, for a lot of the stuff that I've written internally, have always used XML RPC, which recently I've just been, you know, it's, it's not been working out for me. Um, and I'm refactoring a lot of our code to use uh, a RESTful API uh, with uh, JSON as the serialization layer. Um, and uh, um, so I think you were saying it's either CouchDB or, or maybe Redis. It, it, it uses RESTful yeah. and it also uses JSON. As yeah, CouchDB is all JSON. Right? Yeah, yeah, so it's just uh, um, I'm I've switched over recently, and I'm I'm really liking it so far. And I was just wondering if you guys had had experience with uh, uh, using things like SOAP and XML RPC. I don't uh, think I'd ever want to. Well, touch. I'm lucky. I dodged a bullet there. I, I've never had to work with X with uh, SOAP. Yeah. And uh, XML RPC, I, I did deal with for a short while when I was doing Java applications. Then I ended it for. Um, I ended up going with a binary protocol. But it was one that was well supported. It had support for PHP and a couple other languages. And What's so that the ended up protocol? Out. Oh man, I'm having real problems here. It was um, it was one of the ones that bundled with Spring. Oh okay. Um, I, you know, honestly, God, I can't remember. I you mean, bad. RMI? Hmm? RMI? No, oh. no, no. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was. Yeah, no, it wasn't RMI. Uh, honestly, I can't remember. So well, in 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 prior lifetimes, I've had to do so. Uh, just because that's what was required. And back then, this was like 2003 era. Was this with Java? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I know the .NET guys use SOAP a lot. Terra well, Server was all SOAP. That's why I was using SOAP the, at one point. The thing about SOAP is, is that if you're a you know sort of bare metal application developer, it's miserable. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, but if you are wrapped in the velvety cocoon of .NET or Java, they have <laughs> magic. Yes, absolutely. You get your wisdom, <laughs> and you can call those methods as if they're native, local implementations of some piece of software, which you know obviously creates a lot of a uh, lot of potential for for abstraction leakage, um, but. Within that sort of environment, it's a wonderful thing to work with um, compared to REST, which is, uh, you know, for us, and when you're building things out that are 
relatively straightforward in their functionality, uh, you know, and don't have typed arguments and all that sort of stuff. You don't have to serialize uh, components right. that is a list box with uh, Yeah, sending, sending object graphs over the wire <laughs> in comparison seems a little nutty if you're used to a, a REST sort of infrastructure. Right. But, um, but if you have the tools for it, so it can be very pleasant. Everything that we're building is totally RESTful just because uh, I can't personally cope with building that out right now. It, it, there's there's a there's a large tax as a developer in terms of you know going through all the all the uh, um, you mean building this busy work interface? yeah all the all all the busybody work of defining those interfaces yeah, as opposed almost, to here's your five API points in REST yeah, you go yeah, do it's it. almost easier to what? build a REST interface and then write a little write a little wrapper um, library around it for your customer you know well one of the things I really like about REST that sort of blows my mind because I've, I've been also been playing with the REST API of, of Apache Solar. Mm-hmm. And it was great because I'm also playing with a Python search engine called, I think it's called Woosh. I think it's <laughs> W-H-O-O-S-H. Um, and it's pretty cool, but I wanted to talk to it like I talked to the Solar API, and it was super trivial to replicate the RESTful API the, the RESTful content and search API that uh, Solar has on top of Woosh. Um, but the, the, the cool thing is just the testing. I think that anything that has a RESTful API, it is trivial to write a client for in Perl, in Python, in any of the scripting languages. In Ruby. Curl. In Curl, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was amazed yeah. by that because you can post things with Curl. Huh? You can do GET requests. So I was looking at someone's um, automated script for pushing documents, and they were using curl. And, uh, you know, I was just amazed at that level um, that, that you can do things like that. So um, I have drank the restful Kool-Aid. Uh, See, I've come across a bunch of debate online. Uh, we have to get going. But <clears throat> for those who are listening, we, we go to this developers group, wmassdevs.com, and it's about to start in about 15 minutes. But anyway... Um, a bunch of passion and burlap. What? That was the protocol. Hessian. Hessian. Yes. Like Hessian, as in the Germans. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. That was the that was the Java protocol Hessian, and they it, I believe Hessian is the binary protocol. You can transparently swap it out for burlap, <laughs> which is which is a text based protocol. Wow. Okay. Uh, there's there's a variety of debate uh, about what is restful because I guess the guy who originally came up with that and as part of some dissertation and he just wrote a paper right it's like right. it wasn't his job right it was it was it was a dissertation but um, I guess a key part of it was that responses from a restful API uh, it had HTTP links to other options you could, you had on that resource you had just operated on so if you put something it would respond I guess it's, it's supposed to respond with maybe HTML or just a P tag with a bunch of links in it in it to other URLs related to that resource. And uh-huh. and, and yeah, apparently. And uh-huh. and um, uh, this 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 uh, uh, the uh, typical way you build quote unquote restful APIs these days where you you know do a get or you do a post and it returns JSON as a response but doesn't have uh, any actual URLs as links to other 
uh, API points you can touch uh, is apparently non-conformant according to the purists in that particular position. Well, uh, RESTful doesn't even require the HTTP protocol. I mean, if you, I have a book called RESTful Web Services, mm -hmm. I think. It's an O'Reilly book. Um, I mean, uh, we always, we almost always talk about it in the context of an HTTP protocol request, but the original spec like supports other protocols as well. So, but this is this is I, I presume it's something along those same lines as uh, uh, like the in, the uh, XML info set uh, you know uh, purists that talk about how XML as we usually see it is just a arbit almost arbitrary serialization format and it's not actually XML. Well, right. I don't know. This, this seems like people who uh, feel that some amount of pain and misery <laughs> is important. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not really doing it right. I mean, you know, returning like an HTML page of a list of links, like the like the Apache default directory listing, and then forcing your application to like parse through that—that's crazy. I. It's entirely possible I'm totally misrepresenting that position. Well, you know, I'd, I'd, well, I'd like so to far. say that sounds likely, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I've been alive and interacting with the Internet too long so that for every crazy pos extremist position, there's 100,000 people who think it's reasonable. So. Well, it's a signal to noise because, yeah, if you Google RESTful, uh, yeah, you come across the, there's, you come across the disagreement. So for someone that's looking at RESTful, APIs for the first time. It's very confusing. So I got a book. Um, I made my best stab guess at understanding what, what it is. Um, when my understanding improves, uh, if needed, I will refactor my code to, yeah. to apply that. But I, otherwise... Yeah, I'm going to go with the position that, that that position, that you need to return some sort of HTML with URLs or even URLs themselves, is going to be incorrect because the HTTP protocol does not require an HTML-based response. Well, keep in mind the whole thing is being was put together by this guy doing a dissertation. He could make up whatever rules he wanted. Yes. Right. Um, well, that's true. But that rule he didn't, he need not make up <laughs> because it's okay <laughs> because HTTP doesn't require HTML to be to be the, the sure. either the the result or what you send. It's, it's a, a living request. concept. We'll modify it to our liking. Yeah. So REST, I think, is very interested over about at least. Although it doesn't need to be HTTP, it's very interested in the HTTP semantics, which are complete, which are divorced from HTML. So that's my position. That's a fine point, sir. Yes. Well, excellent. Well, a fine point, but still an excellent point. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think Joe's dying in the corner. Yeah, right I guess so. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you for listening this far if there's anybody left out there um, <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll talk to you sometime soon again uh, maybe we'll try and get underneath the hour mark next time that would be a that'd be a worthy goal all right